We, we pray the Lord's Prayer just now, and, and it is the Lord's Prayer in the sense that Jesus is the one who gave it, but it's not the Lord's Prayer from the standpoint that Jesus could have really prayed it for himself, because part of that prayer, as we said, is forgive us our debts, forgive us our transgressions, our sins. So there's confession of sin in there. And we know that Jesus was without sin. He was the perfect Son of God. And so this wasn't His prayer to pray. This was His prayer to give us so that we might know how to pray and learn to pray. And and so it's not a prayer that's intended also to be repeated over and over again, though that's probably most of us have that as, as our background. I know particularly playing sports, even in a public high school. I don't know if they still do this or not. Uh, no, I'm seeing heads shaking no. Uh, but uh, we would always pray the Lord's Prayer before every basketball game. And, and if we won, particularly if it was an upset or something like that, which every time we won it was an upset. Um, but then, then we would also pray at the end. And if we lost, we didn't, we didn't, didn't waste our time with that. But I found that interesting. Um, but it is, it's a model prayer that we can learn what prayer is and, and how to do it. Now in John 17, though, we have the real Lord's Prayer. I'm not telling you you shouldn't use the word Lord's Prayer to describe what we find in, in Matthew, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. But this is what he prayed. This is how he prayed and how he talked to the Father. And so if, if you're like me, you've read, of, you've read in the Gospel accounts these times of Jesus spending entire nights in prayer before the Father. And, and, and you wondered, and like, I'm sure like I have, I thought to myself, what was that like? If you could have been there and listened in on Jesus communing with His Father and talking to His Father, what, what would that have sounded like? What would I have heard? Well, we get a chance to get a sense of that, I think, here in John 17, probably more clearly than any other place. We get to study one of His prayers right here in John 17. And, and we would be on safe ground if we were to make the claim that this is the greatest prayer that's ever been recorded. And this it's the longest recorded prayer in the New Testament. And, 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 but the point here is different from the Lord's Prayer that we think of. The, the, the point is not for us to learn how to pray, though there is certainly, we could make application on um, Jesus is certainly a model to pray, but that's not the point here. That's not really what this is about. This is really about us getting to look behind the veil and to see Jesus communing with His Father, crying out to His Father in prayer for Himself, for the apostles, and for us. And so there's a, there's, there's, this is a prayer of intercession. This is that great high priestly prayer. Our high priest is praying to the Father for us. It's also for our instruction, for we have it recorded for us. And it seems that Jesus prayed this in the hearing of the disciples and and they see him lifting his his eyes to heaven, and they hear him say these words. I, I mean, in theory, it's possible that this could have been later revealed to them what Jesus prayed. But it seems that they are hearing this, and so. And it, but it, regardless, it's recorded for us. Unlike other prayers that Jesus prayed, I think it's also in the context. It's for our comfort. It's for our encouragement. It's for Christ's comfort and encouragement. As he's anticipating the cross, and certainly for the apostles, and even for us, just prior to his betrayal and his arrest and his crucifixion, this is his prayer. This is how he talks to God on the eve of his suffering. And so, so I would just say we're, we're treading on holy ground as we walk into John 17 this morning. Maybe we should have had our ushers 
check the shoes at the door or something like that. I mean, you're just wearing flip-flops. You could have kicked them off in a pile or something. Picnic Sunday here. Uh, but th- this is, this is we, we've talked about the upper room discourse being the holy of holies of Scripture. Well, this is kind of the Ark of the Covenant as we get into John 17. And, and, and so th- there, there, are, there aren't many weeks that I don't, I, I, I'm not overwhelmed by feelings of inadequacy in coming to preach God's Word. And I have the, the struggle right here on the front row most weeks as I'm talking to God and and seeing my weakness and the need for His strength. But there, a day like today and a passage like this, it's almost, I'm almost paralyzed to come in here. And I have to borrow the words of Paul who says, who is adequate for these things? And, and I don't feel that adequacy in myself. But he goes on in the next verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, we are though not like so many, so many peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And that's what I hope to do this morning. So John 17, we'll, we will cover this prayer in three weeks is the plan. There are, there are preachers who have preached dozens and up, almost a hundred sermons just on John 17. So that gives you a sense of uh, the, the the weightiness of this text. We will not do that here. But uh, John 17, and then we're just going to read the first five verses. When Jesus had, had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. Since You have given Him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Well, those words are the beginning of this magnificent prayer. And, and I know we've been talking a lot about the Protestant reformers over the, over the course of this year. This year marks the 500th anniversary, as many of you know, of the, the spark of the Reformation of Martin Luther's nailing the 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg and on October 31st, 1517. 15, and so, I just want you to just, with that in mind, just listen to what a few of the reformers had to say about this particular chapter in Scripture. Martin Luther himself said of this prayer, This is truly beyond, he said this in German, so just imagine a German accent here. This is truly beyond measure, a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart both in reference to us and to his Father, and he pours it all out. It sounds so honest, so simple, but it is so deep, so rich, so wide. No one can fathom it. His good friend and fellow worker, and Philip Melanchthon, Melanchthon said this, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than this prayer offered up by the Son of God Himself. And then John Knox, who was a Scottish reformer, 
Um, he, he spoke and wrote very skillfully and very widely and powerfully. And the, and the tug of his words were felt all the way to the, to the, on, on the royal robes of Mary, Queen of Scots herself. And she was dubbed, as you know, Bloody Mary because she was just vehement in her, in her opposition against Christianity and, and, and had some 300 uh, evangelical church leaders killed for, for their, uh, uh, preaching of the gospel, but she hated John Knox. I mean, hated him with a passion and opposed him tirelessly. And she banished him from his pulpit, but she couldn't extinguish the flame of his influence. And so she had, she, she, it was said, she had said once that she feared the prayers of John Knox more than she feared all the armies of Scotland. I mean, that's how she viewed him. Uh, but as John Knox, this Scottish reformer, lay on his bed dying, from sickness, he turned to his wife and he whispered to her and asked her to read the passage where he, in his words, cast his first anchor of faith. And it was John 17. And over the week or so that he lay in bed dying, he had this, this prayer read over and over to him. And, and it was a tremendous source of comfort and encouragement to him in his dying days. So it just gives you some sense of how this prayer is viewed. And we'll see why as we work our way through it. Well, the setting of the prayer, see it there in in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, and so it's these words of the upper room discourse. And so I I realize there's debate on whether uh, Jesus and the disciples are already on their way to Gethsemane at this point. At the end of chapter 14, it says that that Jesus said, "Let's, let's go. And so he may be on his way. I tend to think they're probably still in the upper room at this point. But regardless, he's just spoken these words, this, this block of instruction, exhortation to the disciples. And, and again, and knowing that he's going to be leaving there for his betrayal, for his arrest, for his death. So that's, that's the setting. And then, and then you see that Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. This is his posture when he, when he's praying to the Father here. Now, I don't want to make, belabor this point, but when you, when you hear someone say, let's pray together, what do we tend to do? Just what you did a moment ago. You bow your head, you close your eyes, and that's perfectly fine. That's, that's a good posture to pray, but you understand that's not the only way to pray. Uh, you could, you could, you could lift your hands, you could look, lift your eyes to heaven. You can kneel down. I mean, you look in Scripture and there are all kinds of postures of prayer. We don't want to confuse the non-essential aspects of prayer and, and, and miss the most important parts of prayer. And, and so, but here, Jesus is lifting His eyes to heaven and as He calls out to the Father. And then the structure of this prayer, just real quickly, and then we'll get into, into the first five verses. It's an easy-to-follow outline. And, and you'll see this as we work our way through. The first five verses, he's praying for himself. And, and his, we'll see that glory dominates these first five verses. The second, in verses 6 through 19, he's praying for mothers. No, he's not praying for mothers. He's praying for the apostles, but we're going to cover that on Mother's Day. So, um, so we'll, we'll, we'll make application to moms, but we're going to go ahead and keep working our way through this prayer. And so verses 6 to 19, he's praying for the, the, the apostles. Those 11 men that are with him that night. And again, there's application to us. But, and then he prays for us. He prays for the church universal, those who would believe in his name. 
in verses 20 to 26. And so one of the key themes in this prayer, particularly in these opening verses, as I said, is, is glory. Five times in, in these first five verses, glory or glorify. And so this is where it begins. The glory of the Son that the Father might be glorified. Now again, we, we've been around church long enough, most of you. You hear that word and, and, and it might be kind of dulled. And you might have kind of forgotten what that even means. But the glory of God is the weight, the worth of God. It's, it's often said as the sum total of all of God's attributes. So it's not, if you were studying the attributes of God, you wouldn't study His wisdom and His power and His sovereignty and His glory. It's not one of His attributes. It's, the, it's, it's, it's who He is. It's His person. That's, we're talking about it. And it's His glory. It's His very nature. He's glorious. And so, so then to glorify God is to throw light upon God as He really is. It's to, it's to show Him Show him off so that, so that others marvel at who he is. It's, it's to show him off. It's not to make him look better than he, than he does. Not to put makeup on God or something like that. We want to make God look really impressive. And so we're doing all we can. No, it's the, it's who he is. We're just trying to get out of the way and show God as he really is. That's what we're talking about and glorifying God. And so Jesus and the Father are glorified when the radiance of their attributes are on display. And so this is, this is what's dominating Christ's mind as he, as he, as he sees the cross come into view. And so how will, how will the glory of Jesus, which highlights the glory of the Father, be seen? We'll see it four ways. Four points this morning. We can write these down. Simple enough. First thing is Jesus is glorified by the death that he died. He's glorified by the death that he died. Again, verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour has come. What hour? The hour has come for which he came. The the, the hour of atonement for sin. The hour of betrayal, arrest, crucifixion. The hour of fulfilled prophecy, the hour of triumph over sin and death and the devil, the hour of dismissing the old and ushering in the new, the hour of, of, of the, the, when the world went dark and when the, the earth just rocked and reeled and the graves gave up their dead, the hour of resurrection and ascension and coronation, the hour of the glory of Jesus, the Son of God. This is the hour that's come. This was the God-ordained hour determined before the world was ever created that when the Lamb of God would be slain to take away the sin of the world. This is the hour. The very purpose of His coming, the consummation of His mission. He says, Father, the hour has come. And five times in the Gospel of John, we've seen that this hour, this time, it, it is not yet come. He's saying it's not time, it's not time. But on this night, the cross is immediately ahead and Jesus says, it's come. It's time. He knows His predetermined hour is upon Him. And when He prays to the Father, glorify your Son, that your Son might glorify you, He has in mind the cross. And I would say the resurrection and ascension and glorification, coronation, but it all, it all flows from the cross work. And so knowing what we know and said about glory just a moment ago and glorify, the cross seems like a very unlikely place to find glory. 
In that day, they, they didn't make and sell jewelry, you know, with, in the shape of crosses. That was, it was a hideous symbol. It was not seen as a fashion accessory like it often is today. It would be like having a hangman's noose tied around your neck or something like that. The cross was a place of shame, of humiliation, of, of the most excruciating form of execution known to man. But in God's infinite wisdom, the cross is where the glory of God is supremely displayed. If, if, the, if the glory of God is the sum total of all of His attributes, what better place can we go than to see who God is and what He's like than the, than the cross? We don't have time to really walk through all of these, but just think of some of the things that we see, these truths that we see of God there displayed and demonstrated at the cross. We see Paul says very clearly in, 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 in 1 Corinthians 1 that, that the, the cross, Christ crucified, is the very wisdom and the power of God. This is, this is His wisdom. This is His, his way of, of atoning for man's sin, of, of bringing man and fellowship back to fellowship with God. This is the power of God overcoming all. We see the sovereignty of God. It's wicked men who crucified Jesus. And they're scheming evil in their heart against the Son of God. And yet God is the one who is ruling over all this, all that's happening. And Acts 2.23 tells us it's all part of the predetermined plan of God. We see His sovereignty. We see His patience as He hangs on the cross, as He endures the mocking and the, and the, and the wicked treatment of, of who He is, knowing, knowing who He is. He has full awareness that He is God. And yet He endures it patiently. The long-suffering of God. We see is the justice of God and the, and the wrath of God is the Holy One. He's decreed that the wages of sin is death. And, and yet, so, so it's not like He can just say, ah, you know what, forget it, I forgive your sin. No, the justice of God must be satisfied. So He dies in the place of sinners, making full atonement for sin. So that, on, so that, that God could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. See, certainly the love and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God and all these attributes just pour forth from Christ on the cross. So, so it's this way that the very death that Jesus died is, 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 is for the, it's, it's part of the glorification of Christ. In some ways, it's the gateway to the glory that's coming that we'll see in verse 5, but in other ways, it is a demonstration of the very glory of God. And so this is why we sing about the cross. We've been doing it this morning and we'll never stop. For all eternity we'll be singing of the Lamb who was slain. It's part of the way. It's in the cross that we glory. And so from the human viewpoint, Calvary is this revolting display, the most despicable display of man's sin ever. But from God's vantage point, the cross reveals and magnifies the grace and the glory of God. So it is for us. So that's the first. Jesus is glorified by the death that He died. Second, Jesus is glorified by the life that He gives. By the life that He gives. Verse 2 and verse 3. So, so Jesus prays that the Father might be glorified and glorify the Father, or that He might be glorified, glorify the Father. Then He shows how that's going to be worked out. How that's worked out. Verse 2. Since, this is the connection, since you have given Him all authority over all flesh. That's just a... Hebraism for all people. To give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. (coughs) 
So Jesus, the Son, has authority over everyone. That's an amazing claim. No one can make that claim and, and, and be truthful unless you're God. And so he, so he makes it, the, the, the Father has given this authority, but the, the purpose of this authority over all people is to give life to some people. And so in order to save some out of every nation, the one who saves must have authority, absolute authority over all. That's what Jesus is saying. And so the purpose of Christ and His authority, though, is, is life. This is the purpose of the Gospel of John. So we shouldn't be surprised that we see John emphasizing this here and what he's recorded for us under the inspiration of the Spirit. The whole purpose of John is that we would see Jesus, that we would believe in Him, and that we will have life in Him. And so this is what, as Jesus prays to the Father, He's saying, You have given me authority over all people so that I can give life to some, those You have given me. And so what do we, we see a couple things about this life. First, this life is a gift. It's a gift. The Father didn't send the Son and bestow Him with authority over all people so that He could come and show some how to earn life on their own. Let me pave the way. Just follow my example. Do what I do. And let me show you how to earn life. That's not why He came. He came to give it. He came to gift it. The verb to give is used 17 times in this prayer. The focus is on God's grace in Christ. And so the first thing, life is a gift. This, secondly, this life is eternal. He calls it eternal life. Now, as we'll see, it doesn't just mean that, that, that we'll just simply exist forever. That we're going to, you know, spending eternity in, somewhere in heaven, just kind of floating around and, and bored out of our minds and just bored along with the angels who are just there and existing forever. That's not it. No, whatever awaits us will blow our minds away. It's beyond our imagination. Paul says, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But, but it, it, it's true though that this life, this wonderful, abundant, glorious life that Jesus came to give, it's everlasting. It's everlasting, eternal life. But now, let's see. So it's, it's, this life is a gift, this life is eternal, and finally this life, well not finally, but the next this life is personal. It's personal. Eternal life, as we said, it's not just, it's not just quantitative, it is quantitative, it goes on for eternity, but it's also qualitative. The essence of this life that Jesus came to give, this eternal life, is the wonder of knowing the only true God. And there is only one true God. And His Son, Jesus Christ. He says, this is eternal life. That you know, that you know the only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is it. It's not simply knowing about the one true God. That's not eternal life. It's not doing some things in the name of the one true God. That's not eternal life. It's not being actively involved in a religion that stands for the one true God. That's not eternal life. Eternal life is when you know Him and His Son. When you've been brought into fellowship with God through faith in Christ. When your sins have been forgiven. When you've been reconciled to this one true living God. That's the essence of eternal life. To know Him. 
To know Him in the fullest sense. To know Him personally as your Savior and, to, and, and your Lord. To have a personal relationship with Him by faith. That is, that is eternal life. And so this life is a gift. It's eternal. It's personal. Finally, it's ordained. It's ordained. Now Jesus could have said that the Father has given Him all authority to, to give eternal life to all those who would believe in Him. And that would have been true. John chapter 1 verse 12, he gave him the right, he, he gives all the right to become children of God. Um, and, 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 and so John 3.16 and other verses, but that's not the emphasis here. Instead, Jesus says that he's been given authority, look at the text, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He repeats this designation in verse 6 and verse 9, verse 24. Those that the Father has given Him. The emphasis here is on God's sovereign choice to give some to the Son and on the Son's authority to give eternal life to those people. You get that? Let me say that again. The the emphasis here is on God's sovereign choice to give some to the Son and on the Son's authority to give eternal life to those people. He uses similar language. We've seen this in John already. In John chapter 6 and verse 37, all that the Father gives me, there's the same expression, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then in verse 39, and this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So those whom the Father has given to the Son, they are responsible to come to Him. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To put their faith in Him. That, that's their responsibility. But somehow in God's economy, there's no doubt that they will come and that He will keep them for eternity. That's mystery. I understand. So ultimately their salvation, their eternal destiny, is it rests with God's purpose, not their choice. And so, listen. I know... Some of you, I can sense the heartburn already starting to grow right here. But Jesus has not said these words to cause you heartburn or to cause this preacher heartburn or to stir up debates at the church, at church picnics on election. That's not why this is here. This is a prayer. We are in the inner sanctum of, 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 of Jesus communing with His Father. And this is part of it, though. And this is, he's praying in this way to show what? That the cross is not in vain. This is a great encouragement. This should be of great encouragement to us. Not consternation. Yes, sinners will betray, will crucify Jesus, but they cannot thwart God's plan to save. They cannot. His sheep will hear His voice. All that the Father gives Him will come to Him. God didn't send His Son to this earth to suffer, to die in hopes that somewhere, somehow, some person or some people might possibly choose to believe in Him and receive life. No. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Paul says in Ephesians. He predestined us according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. Now we don't know those whom the Father has given to Christ. Till they trust in Him. Because we're all born blind. 
We're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. We're all enemies of God by nature. We're all engaged in wicked deeds. We're all deserving of hell. There's nothing to distinguish the elect from the non-elect before they trust in Christ. There's not a single thing that you can point to. And if, and if God given, had give, gives us what we deserve, we would all suffer forever and perish forever in hell. But God, by His grace, set His love on us before the world ever existed, Scripture says. He knew us before we were born. He sent His Son to this earth to save us from our sins. That's His grace. That's His grace. And so what do we do? We preach the gospel to everyone and declare God's new good news that there is a way for sinners to be reconciled to God. The way is open. That God has done everything necessary for anybody who wants to trust in Christ to be saved. There's no restriction. The, the way is open to reconciliation with God. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, do you want to be saved today? Do you want eternal life? Do you want your sins forgiven? Do you want to be reconciled with God? You can be. You just call upon Him. You can say, I'm a sinner, God. I need, I need mercy. I need forgiveness. I know. I believe that Christ died for me. He rose again. He's done everything necessary to make, to, to, to make atonement for my sin and to, to open up the way for me to be reconciled with you. And I trust in Him. I, I renounce everything, everything I've tried to do to earn favor with you. It's all garbage. But I trust you, Christ. What you've done to pay for sin, you could be boarding in right now. And so I, I, I plead with you to put your trust in Christ today. Not a single, there's not a thing in the world that can stop you from doing that right now. And so the, 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 the Bible, it doesn't say to question whether or not you're chosen or whether or not somebody else is chosen. That's not the point. The Bible says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved. But after you've trusted Him, this is where we get brothers and sisters. Listen, after you've trusted Him, you realize that you didn't trust Him because there was something innately good in you. There's nothing inside of you that made you more inclined to God. You're not smarter than the average bear. You're not, you're not, uh, you're not you know, more righteous or moral or inclined toward religion. It's not genetics. There is nothing in you to separate you. The only factor, the X factor, is the sovereign grace of God. And so we say, God's salvation is of the Lord. It's your doing. It's by your doing that I'm in Christ Jesus. And you get all the glory. And this is, this is what I'm saying. The whole point is glory. What? Because we, we see Jesus is glorified in the life that He gives because the end result and what we see and what Jesus is showing to us as the veil is pulled back is that all life comes from God. It's a gift. And those who believe have been given to the Son, by the Father. It is indeed by His doing. And so it all abounds to His glory and to the glory of the Father. Third, how is Jesus glorified and the Father glorified here? Jesus is glorified by the work that He finished. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The, the work that Jesus accomplished, all of His teaching, all of His miracles, but culminating in His suffering and His death and His resurrection, certainly that's to come. But, but Jesus lived to do the Father's will. 
This was his chief delight, as we've seen throughout our study of the Gospel of John. And Jesus has accomplished what he's saying, the mission that the Father assigned to him. Now he's speaking as if the cross and the resurrection are already passed in, and he's done this in other places, but it's so certain. And so, the, 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 as we'll see in verse 6, we'll see this next week, the Father's, uh, or the Father glorifying work that Jesus has accomplished is summed up in verse 6 is saying, I have manifested your name. I've manifested your name. Jesus manifests the name of God. He makes the unseen God seen in a way uh, that no one else can. That's been his mission. There's a sense in which every believer today can glorify God. You can, you can, you can uh, make God known. Uh, that's part of our mission. But no one has ever made the Father's name known like Jesus has made the Father's name known. Jesus could say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen God. We can't say that. But Jesus could, in all sincerity. Hebrews 1 verse 3, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the glory of God's Son. Or to use the language of John, the writer of this Gospel account, John 1.1, this is how it all began. In the beginning was the Word, the expression of God, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what, what does it say? Was God. And you looked out at verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we, we saw Jesus' glory, His unique glory with respect to the Father. To see the Son is to see the Father. And, 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 and so this was the mission of Jesus, to, to, to manifest the Father's name, to make His glory known, and mission was accomplished. So Christ is glorified as the Father is glorified as His name is made known through Christ's life. And this brings us to the last, the last statement here. Fourth way we see Jesus glorified is in the oneness that He shares. He's glorified in the oneness that He shares. Verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. Now, just listen to me here because I don't want to confuse and lead your mind on, into a ditch here. But... We, we need to see there, there are different ways this word glory is used in the New Testament. And we get to see some of that distinction here. Again, the glory of God is the sum total of all of His attributes. It's who He is. It's His name. It's character. It's His, His, His nature. But, and, and so that's, that's, that's part of the glory. But there are ways in which this same word is used to describe something. It's that, but it's something else too. It's something more. And listen, because when Jesus came to earth, He did not lay aside that glory. Don't, don't think that. He, what I mean is he did not become less God. God is glorious. It's who he is. And he didn't become less of who God is when he came to earth as a baby in the incarnation. He was as much God on earth as he was in heaven. Fully God, fully man. To deny that, you're walking into heretical waters. And so he took, he took on himself, though, a real sinless human nature and and by the way, he's not laid that aside either. He, he is now in heaven, the God-man for all eternity. 
What verse 5 is about, it's not about Jesus asking for de-incarnation. If I could just shuck this body, that would be great, God. And I could be back with you, Father. That's not it. No, He, he is forever the God-man. Um, for all eternity, he will, be, he will be God in flesh in, this, in that sense of having a real, human, resurrected, glorified body, which ours will be made in the likeness of His. So Jesus... But, but Jesus didn't lay aside the godness. He didn't lay aside the glory, the sum total of all of God's attributes. That No, Colossians 2.9, For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So, so it's not that he, he became less glorious or anything like that. He didn't lay aside that. But there's another use of this word glory that speaks of brilliance and light and radiance and something visible and something that can be perceived physically with our eyes and our senses. And so when Jesus came to earth, in that sense, His glory was veiled. That to see Jesus was to see someone who in outward terms and outward appearance was no different than any other man. You wouldn't be walking down the street and past Jesus and, and observe this, you know, this strange glow coming from his insides or something like that. No, that's not the case. There was no you know, halo around his head or, or just light fusing from his pores or something like that. That's, that, that's not what you saw. You, you, he was indistinguishable from other men. And, and in fact, there are, there are, as Jesus performed signs and wonders that could only be performed by someone who is God, people still try to insist he's just a man. Look at him, he's a man. I know his parents, I know where he's from, I know he's from Nazareth, and I know his mom and dad, he's a carpenter's son. But, but in Matthew 17, you know this passage, we call it the transfiguration, and, and, and we see Jesus changed before the eyes of some of, from some of the disciples, and, and we, we get to see that brilliance, that brightness unveiled for just a moment. Matthew 17, just listen, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him, with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured. He was changed before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, now let me just stop right there. You could just add whatever Peter's about to say to the list of things that Peter probably later regretted. Why did I say that? There was a long list, and just like there is for us. But he says, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I love how this is recorded. He was still speaking when, behold, A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am very well pleased. Listen to Him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So, it's this glory. It's this brilliant light and radiance that Jesus is longing for in verse 5. And what is the association here? He's yearning to go home with His Father. To be, to have this glory in His presence, Jesus says. To enjoy the radiant warmth of God's presence again. To be face to face with Him in bright glory. He's yearning for it. 
And so he says, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so his prayer in verse 5, it doesn't work. It doesn't even make sense if he's not God. If he's not equal with the Father. God doesn't share his glory with anyone. Isaiah prophet makes this very clear the Lord does through Isaiah I will not share my glory with anyone and yet here's Jesus saying glorify me in your presence he's God if we seek our glory we seek our glory at the expense of God's glory that's called idolatry so I'm, I'm, I'm wanting the attention. Well, I'm always detracting the attention away from God. But when Christ asks the Father to glorify Him, it's not at the expense of the Father because the glorification of the Son is the glorification of the Father. It's crazy. Philippians 2, you get a, we get an example of this in that great hymn in Philippians 2 that Paul writes of, the, of the, the condescension and the majesty of Christ. God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, what? To the glory of God the Father. There's no competition in the Godhead. So we see this and we say, that's not selfish, glorify me, glorify me. It is if we would ever say something like that and we say it all the time with our actions. We want to draw, we draw, detract attention from God, but for Jesus to say that, it just brings more glory to the Father. When the Son is exalted, when the Son is honored, when the Son is restored to fullness of glory that, that He enjoyed with the Father from all eternity, that honors the Father as well. And because, because the Father and the Son with the Spirit are one. Now did Jesus, or did the Father answer Jesus' prayer here? Yes, He did. We, we have evidence of this. The very first Christian martyr that we know of, Stephen, from Acts 7, when he was about to be stoned to death. Acts 7, verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heaven, heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen saw Jesus in His bright, radiant, glorified state. He, the Father answered. Well, this is, this is the real Lord's Prayer. I know this is a heavy, heavy subject for a picnic Sunday. People are thinking about mac and cheese and baked beans and stuff like that. I, I, I realize that. But this, this, it's the Lord's Prayer because it shows us who Jesus really is. It shows us our Lord. That's what's so wonderful about it. It shows us who He is. It shows where He's come from. It shows us what His attitude is toward what He came to do. He's not reluctant when it comes to saving us, which is just astounding. It's part of the glory of the cross. He's, he's ready He's not shying away from it. He's submitting to it. And it's not just the Son in distinction from the Father and the Spirit. No, the triune God is, is working for our eternal good. As we, that's what we get to see in this prayer here. Father, Son, Spirit. 
working together on mission to redeem those that the Father has given to the Son. Ah, it's, it's good. So we're going we're gonna to sing. That's a good way for us to respond. We're going to sing of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. The, 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 we're going to give immortal praise that He deserves and, 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 let, and sing out to Him. So team, why don't you come on up and, and, and the, the, the song concludes, walks through the work of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and then speaks of the triune God where reason fails with all her powers. And brothers and sisters, my reason was failing over and over this week. I'm reading these words, reading these phrases, scratching what it, how it's just so deep, so lofty. But where reason fails, faith prevails. And beyond that, love adores. And adoring the Lord, giving praise to Him for His grace and His glory.